When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode of the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. You know, Pella, they're day one, man. They're, they're, they're day one homies for the Nick Bob Podcast. They've been with me from day one. And, you know, not only is Pella a great company, they got great people there. I went to school with my guy Vince, just a great dude. They're the kind of people you want to do business with. And if you've pushed off a project with some windows or some doors, something like that, now is the time to turn that project into a reality because we all know a new set of windows, a new door can do a lot of things for you, can change the look, the vibe, the feeling of your home. It can add value to your home. Plus it can make your home more energy efficient. Pella checks all those boxes and then some Pella can provide window and door solutions to any home. And again, working with the people at Pella second to none. So hit them up online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob podcast is powered by Runza. Runza has an app and you need to download that app because as a father of two little kids, anything that can increase speed and efficiency when it comes to eating, I'm all for it. And the app does that. I can order food on the app, pop into the restaurant. It's ready for me. It's hot. I'm in. I'm out. I'm now like a finalist for dad of the year or something like that. And it's in large part due to the Runza app and ordering is a breeze on the app. You can customize your order. You can get all your favorites just the way you want them. Plus, you can earn points for rewards in the app. You can score free food from Runza in the app. So go download the Runza app. You can get Runza, get rewards, then get more Runza all on the app. Runza makes it all better. All right, welcome back into the podcast. Boy, these pods have been on fire lately. I'm, I'm seeing the download numbers. I'm seeing the YouTube numbers. I'm seeing the podcast numbers, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Obviously, football in full swing, so there's no shortage of things to discuss, especially with uh, the craziness that is Nebraska football r- right now and in what has been a drama-filled kind of wild season that create a lot of interesting uh, talking points and conversations. Uh, but I got a good a good pod dialed up today. Got a few takes I want to get off my chest and get into regarding Trev Alberts and Scott Frost. And uh, then, I, then I got some thoughts on this Minnesota game, including a prediction for the Huskers and the Gophers taking place in Minneapolis on Saturday. And then I'll wrap things up with a mailbag. Wanted to fire up a mailbag. Got, got a bunch of good questions on uh, Facebook, email. Uh, Twitter about Martinez, Nebraska, even some hoops questions that I'll save for the end. So let, let's get into it, man. Uh, I want to start with with Trev Alberts. I got a handful of Trev things I want to discuss. Most notably, some really, really interesting, juicy quotes from Trev Alberts in an ESPN article that was posted of t- on Tuesday, I believe. Of this week, and I'm going to get to those those quotes in a second. But it's kind of been Trev week around here. Frost talked about Trev Alberts in the, in his press conference on Monday, which prompted Steve Sippel to write an entire column about the support that Trev Alberts is providing to the players and the coaching staff. And 
you know, in in Sip's story in the Lincoln Journal Star, he talked about Trev Alberts being in the locker room and encouraging the players and communicating with Frost and how great that is. And my first thought when when I read the column, which is a good column, by the way, but my first thought was, wow, how bad has it gotten over in the Nebraska Athletic Department that an athletic director simply meeting and communicating with their head coach calls for a column and praise, <laughs> right? Or the fact that the athletic director was encouraging the players and and talking to them. I mean, damn, that, that column was kind of illuminating in how the most seemingly basic things didn't happen in the past with Nebraska athletic directors to coaches and players. And it's just unbelievable to think about. I mean, think about that. Meeting with the AD, meeting with the coach. It's like, oh boy, how about that? Amazing. It's like, wow, that's should it's shouldn't be amazing. Breaking news that calls for praise, but when that hasn't been happening, I get why that's a story. You know what I mean? I I get why something that has not happened for a handful of years, when that finally is happening, I get why it's a story. But nevertheless, that that was kind of my first takeaway. But kudos to Trev Alberts for kind of getting it right. And I think it has to make an impact on Scott Frost. Has to, right? To have an athletic director who is in constant communication with you. They they meet every Sunday, according to the story, and talk about the game and everything with, with the program. And Frost loves it and appreciates it. And I was thinking about that little anecdote, those, those Sunday meetings between Frost and Trev. And it made me want to, to pull up something from the summer. So for, for those that don't know about kind of my process and all that stuff, I really like to write out my thoughts, like everything. Like you guys would be, I think I have 26 pages written for this podcast. Now, a lot of them are mailbag questions and I write out, like I write out everything. I, I've, I'm like right now I'm pseudo kind of reading it word for word from a word document that I have in front of me. And I think it's because of my solo radio background and being terrified of losing my train of thought and not knowing where I was going with a segment or whatever. Like, you can't just lean on your co-host when that's the case. Like, it is just you and the mic, and you got to know exactly what you're trying to say, where things are going. I was terrified of that initially. I was like, I am going to lose my train of thought. I'm not going to remember where I was going with a point, what's coming up next in a segment. I got to write everything out. I got to write everything out. And it's just kind of stuck with me. But with that in mind, after I read Steve Sibble's column and heard about the little anecdote of, of Trev and Frost meeting every Sunday, I went back and I wanted to look up a few of my thoughts that I had on Trev Alberts being hired right when it was announced in, in the middle of the summer. And I, I found this take. I wrote this take out, and I think it was for Schick and Nick, which is my other podcast, by the way. You should go check that out. Make sure, make sure you subscribe to Schick and Nick. Me and Matt Schick do a pod once a week. It's the dumbest thing you'll ever listen to, but it's really fun. And occasionally we'll dive into some serious conversations. But here is what I, here is what I wrote. This is a take I wrote on July 19th about Trev Alberts being hired and why it could be good for Scott Frost. So here's what I wrote. The other thing that Trev and Scott Frost can do is when they sit down to talk, they are cut from the same cloth. They didn't play together, but they were in the same culture, the same program, the same standard. And on some level, 
that matters. Frost isn't trying to recreate 1997, just like Trev Alberts isn't trying to recreate 1993. But they are trying to recreate the portable things from 93 and 97 that can apply to today. So I think it's important for guys to be on the same page when they are discussing that. And I liken that whole situation to this. There's a a guy on Creighton's coaching staff, Al Huss, great assistant coach for Greg McDermott. Al Huss played for Dana Altman, but I didn't play with Huss. He was a few few years before me. But when Al Huss and I sit down and, and talk about what good basketball looks like, we speak the same language. I completely understand what Al Huss is trying to do, what he says, what he's looking for, because we both poured blood, sweat, and tears into the same thing, inside the same program with the same head coach. There's a connection and an understanding that is naturally there between us. And I think that is exactly what is going to happen with Trev and Frost now. And I think that is a really positive thing. When you get two people, the two most important people, completely on the same page, pulling in the same direction, that matters. That was a take I wrote out on July 19th after Trev Alberts was hired. And I think you are seeing a version of that come to fruition. I really do. Which is, just just get, you just kind of get the sense that those two guys, Frost and Trev, are really on the same page right now, which is great to see. Which leads me to the the juicy money quotes, really interesting, really telling quotes from Trev Alberts in an ESPN article uh, posted on Tuesday from uh, Andrea Adelson, or Adelson, I'm not sure how she pronounced it. So Andrea Adelson got interviews with both Trev Alberts and Scott Frost last week before the Michigan game. And the quotes from Trev were really, really interesting, insightful, telling, and most importantly, I think incredibly supportive of Scott Frost. Again, I'm, this is there's a whole bunch of quotes I'm going to read here, so kind of sit back and, and, and bear with me. But this is, again, ESPN article, Andrea Adelson. Here we go. So... In the story, Trev Alberts cited a lack of unity among the university athletic administration and football program, which may have hurt Frost, at least to the outset. Here's a quote from Trev. Quote, the programs that are successful, it's not just XYZ coach is so successful. It's an athletic department university-wide culture commitment, unity of purpose. I'm not sure that Scott was the beneficiary of that necessarily. Does it out? He was asked, does Alberts believe that's what's happened at Nebraska over the last 20 years? He says, quote, yes, we're not entitled to success here just because we've done something in the 90s. This is a what have you done for me lately business. Scott, uh, Trev Alberts went on to say, quote, at the end of the day, college football is better when the Hurricanes are good and Notre Dame is good and Nebraska is good. We need to we need to be focused on relevancy. It's a broad term. Let's stop worrying about when are we going to win the West or when are we going to win the Big Ten. 
When are we going to be a football team that other people watch on film and go, "Ugh, those guys play hard." I'm going to tell you I'm I'm, I'm going to tell you I'm really proud of how hard our kids are playing. Trev goes on to say, "To me, fundamentals can be taught. The hardest thing about flipping a culture is getting guys to be willing to lay it on the line when you really don't want to. We have that. Even in those games we lost, those guys are fighting, and that is the most important thing. You have to start with the fight. We're not intimidated or scared, and then we're taking incremental steps in those key areas like special teams and penalties and turnovers. You're always going to have mistakes. It's a part of the game, but it can't define who you are. Pretty interesting quotes there. Some more money quotes from Trev in this ESPN column. Uh, he says, you know, he he was asked kind of about progress with Frost and, and all those sorts of things and trying to make a bowl game and all that stuff. Trev Albert said, quote, I'm never going to be the person that says he's coaching for his job. We don't do that. I've never said you must win this many games or you're fired. And I told Scott, we're on the same page. We're working together. I want to see growth. I'm seeing growth. I'm proud of it. I think Scott is a really good coach. I don't know what happened in the last three and a half years. All I'm worried about is right now, and I'm really proud of how our coaches and assistant coaches have attacked this year. But it's hard to make a judgment on anything right now. Finish up these quotes here with a quote from Frost. He says, quote, I don't feel more pressure because of a vocal minority is saying this or that. I'm not worried about their expectations. I just want this to work so badly. I want to do everything I can to help Nebraska be Nebraska, and we've had a lot of work to do to get that done. We're still in the process of that, but I'm proud of the improvements we've made. It's going to happen. I mean, wow. Lots, lots of juicy, juicy quotes to to chew on there. I mean, in my opinion, that's a pretty big, and maybe I'm maybe I'm misreading this, but that's a pretty big vote of confidence from Trev DeFrost. Right? Like I think I read all those quotes and I think that's that's an AD that is fully backing his head coach. Now, can things change? Sure, I suppose. Everything's subject to change. But I read those quotes and I think, Trev Alberts fully supports Scott Frost. Likes the growth. And the other thing that stood out to me with those quotes was it it almost seems like Trev Alberts is treating this like year one for Frost. Don't you get that quote? I mean, he. I basically, I get the sense that he is basically like, well, you know what? This is year one for me, and all I can go off is what I've seen so far. So my assessment begins now, not three and a half years ago. It begins now. That's my read. And listen, it's not like I'm really reading into things too much. He basically said as much. He said, quote, I think Scott is a really good coach. I don't know what happened the last three and a half years. All I'm worried about is right now, and I'm really proud of how our coaches and assistant coaches have attacked this year. End quote. That is really telling. And I think, barring a catastrophic end to this season, 
I kind of think whatever hot seat chatter that's been popping up, I think we can kind of put some of that stuff to bed, right? I mean, those quotes, th- that doesn't sound like an athletic director who's got the ax out and ready to start chopping heads. That sounds like uh, an, an AD that wants to give Scott Frost a fresh start and make sure he's given him all the support he can get, watch it evolve and grow, and then make a judgment down the road. I think I think Trev, you, you read between the lines, I think Trev feels like the, the infrastructure behind Frost wasn't doing its job, and so he wants to see what Frost can do when the infrastructure's in place, giving him all the support he could possibly need. Now, what that means, I'm not totally sure because I'm not in the athletic department. I wasn't in the athletic department, and neither were you over the course of the last four years. Who knows? Who, who really knows? But that's what it sounds like to me. And I think it appears like you've got an athletic director and a coach who are on the same page. And I, I, think, I, I think we'd all agree when it comes to bosses – it's nice when you feel supported and communicated with, right? Like we've all had jobs. We've all had different bosses. That's really all I've ever wanted from my bosses in my career. Communicate with me, support me, help me. That's it. If I'm doing something wrong, tell me. If I'm doing something right, a little pat on the back can go a long ways. You don't got to kiss my ass all the time, just like Frost doesn't need his ass kissed all the time. But you guys understand what I'm getting at. And I'm sure you're the same way. And it's got to feel good for Frost right now to have an athletic director who speaks his language is communicating constantly with him and is willing to put it on the record that he believes in him and thinks he's a good coach. When you feel supported, appreciated, valued, and communicated with, those are powerful things. And I thought those quotes were extremely insightful. And that felt like kind of a vote of confidence in an organic way that isn't a staged press release statement from the university or whatever, right? Oh, released from the university. Scott Frost is our coach, and I am excited to see where this season ends up. You know, like that 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 doesn't feel like a that feels like a forced type of thing that we've heard before. Like that felt real and organic in that Andrea Adelson story in ESPN. So there you go. And again, barring a catastrophic end of the season, I think we can put to bed some of this hot seat chatter for the moment. So Trev Alberts, listen, man, I liked the hire when it was made, and now that we're actually like into the season and he's on the job, I think he's doing a great job, in my opinion. Some pretty telling Trev quotes. Transitioning to this Minnesota game this weekend, 11 11 a.m. kick, Minneapolis. You know, the Gophers have struggled a little bit because they've been bit by the injury bug. They lost their stud running back, Muhammad Ibrahim. He's hurt. I believe they're down their top two running backs, if I'm not mistaken. They lost to Bowling Green at home a few weeks ago. They did turn around and beat Purdue on the road 20-13, to 13, and now they're coming off a bye week. And you think about this series between Minnesota and Nebraska since Frost arrived. It's been an interesting one. I don't think there's a whole bunch of love between these two staffs. I've always felt like to me, there's a, some parallels between Fleck and Frost. P.J. Fleck went undefeated at a group of five school in the regular season in his last season at Western Michigan. He did lose in a bowl game, but he ran the table in the regular season. Scott Frost went undefeated at Central Florida. They're both in the Big Ten West. They're both locking horns in the division. And there just seems like there's a little tension there. 
I think Frost rolls his eyes at Flex stick, you know, row the boat, all the running up and down the sideline, all that stuff. And I think PJ Fleck rolls his eyes at, you know, the 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 Frost arrogance and swag at times that he maybe carries himself with. I just don't think there's a ton of love. In this series, Frost is one and two versus Minnesota. Frost blasted him in year one, 2018 in, in Lincoln, first Big Ten win for Frost. But then in 2019, Minnesota kicked Nebraska's ass in Minneapolis in a cold October night. And then we remember what happened last year in the COVID season. Minnesota came to, to Lincoln coming off a COVID pause, and they were down like 20 or so players and beat Nebraska in Memorial Stadium. It was a bad day for Frost. It was a bad day for Nebraska last year. But if, if we are to, to back up to that 2019 loss for a second, in some ways, if you look at kind of the trajectory of things for, for Frost since he's been in, at Nebraska, that loss kind of was a turning point for the whole operation. Because it's interesting, we all remember in year one, Scott Frost, he, he started 0-6 in 2018, but then finished 4-2 and in the last six games, right? Then in 2019, despite blowing the Colorado game where they were up 17-0 at half in Boulder and o- Ohio State coming to Lincoln and hammering Nebraska when game day was there in 2019, Nebraska still started 4-2 and that season. So if we were to pause for a second, That means Nebraska under Frost had a 12-game stretch from the end of year one to the and the start of year two, where Nebraska went eight and four in a 12-game stretch. Kind of amazing, right? Four and two to end the 2018 season, four and two to start the 2019 season. It's kind of amazing to think about. There was a 12-game stretch where Nebraska was eight and four, but then that Minnesota beatdown occurred. And Nebraska has, has kind of just been sputtering ever since. They finished 2019 1-5. Then in 2020, they go 3-5. And, and now they're 3-4 and four to start the 2021 season. So since Nebraska took the field at Minnesota in 2019, Nebraska has, has a record of 7-14. and 14. Again, they were 8-4 they were and four in their previous 12 games heading into that, that game. So if you're actually kind of looking at a pivot point, a game where things took a dive, you could you could argue it was this Minnesota game in 2019. It's just kind of interesting to think about. And, and, but when you when you think about the last two losses to Minnesota, and Frost touched on this in his Monday press conference, he called the performance quote uninspired in 2019, and that they had guys that didn't want to be there on a cold, wet night. And he's right. I remember saying as much on the recap pod uh, to Bo Rude the 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 day after that game. Nebraska looked like a bunch of guys that wanted a a hot shower, a warm blanket, and be on their couch rather than go play football. And I just just look at that game in 2019 and then the 2020 game where Nebraska lost to Minnesota and Lincoln. For whatever reason, Nebraska just wasn't emotionally in it. They weren't emotionally there. The energy, the fight just wasn't there. I tell you what, football is a tough sport if you're not all in emotionally. You can't half-heart the sport of football. 
And Nebraska had a couple half-hearted efforts against Minnesota in the last two years. They just Nebraska just wasn't emotionally there. Scott Frost knows that, and you know he's relaying it to the team throughout the week of preparation. And the team has to know that as well. I mean, they were the ones in that game. They remember. They also can turn on the film, which I'm sure they have. And they can see a team that is, quote, playing uninspired, like Frost said, that just isn't emotionally there. And I say all that to say, I actually think that bodes well for this week. And here's why. Their emotional state is top of mind. They're, they're, they're getting reminded of that. They're being keenly aware of their energy level, their fight, where they're at emotionally when they're taking the field. They've been talking about that. I'm sure that's been a theme all week. Frost is reminding the team. The team is aware of it. And when you look at the context of this game for Nebraska, the context of this game for Nebraska would lead you to believe that they're potentially ripe for an emotional letdown. This is their eighth straight week of playing with no buys. They have a buy next week, so they could get caught peeking ahead. They've also had total gut punch losses in three of the last four games, which can wear on you emotionally at Oklahoma, at Michigan State, then Michigan at home. Plus, Michigan, that game was a physical fist fight of a game. So you look at all that and look at a a somewhat struggling, not great Minnesota team, the main concern I have from a Nebraska perspective is making sure there isn't an emotional letdown in this game. And the fact that Nebraska has had two straight losses to Minnesota, which you can kind of chalk up to not being emotionally, quote, all in, when that has cost you, you are hyper aware of that. It's kind of like if you're playing a golf course for three straight days and you've hit it in the water on hole eight the first two days. When you step up to the tee the third day on hole eight, you're keenly aware of the water, right? So I think Nebraska will be ready to play and have energy and be emotionally where they need to be on Saturday morning or Saturday early afternoon in Minneapolis. It cost them twice against Minnesota. I really don't think they're going to let it happen again. And when I look at these two teams, as long as Nebraska Nebraska brings it with energy and fight, I think they're the better football team and I think they'll win. And I just think when you're aware of what has plagued you, you're ready to correct it. And let's be honest, outside of Illinois, this team has played with a, a, a pretty damn good level of fight and energy every Saturday so far. I don't think Minnesota is punks them physically. And again, as long as there isn't a letdown, which listen, the ingredients are there for, for a letdown, like I just laid out. But as long as Nebraska packs the emotion, the energy, and the fight as they board the plane to head to Minneapolis, I think they're going to win the football game. You know how Minnesota's going to do it. They're going to they're, they're going to try to they're going to try to chew clock and grind it so it'll likely be a close game. Vegas has Nebraska favored by about three. I think Nebraska covers and wins. I don't think that Nebraska blows them out, but I think I'll say Nebraska wins 27-20, 24-17, somewhere in there. And obviously this is a big, big game. Getting to a bowl game, getting to six wins is still a possibility. 
It's a tall task, but it's it's possible. And if it's going to happen, Nebraska has to win this game. They have to. This is a must win in a lot of ways. It's a must win if you want to get to six wins. And in some ways, this game, if Nebraska goes out and wins, will will kind of somewhat validate what the narrative of the season has been so far. You know, the narrative has been, hey, you know what, Nebraska's close. They've just played the toughest schedule in the country. They've played three. That's right, three teams that are currently ranked inside the top ten. Oklahoma, Michigan, and Michigan State are all inside the top ten. Nebraska is a good team. They've just played a brutal schedule against top ten teams. That's kind of what the narrative is, which I kind of think is true, by the way. But for that to be somewhat validated, you got to go beat Minnesota. So this is a must. It's a must-win game for the quest in in the quest for six wins, and it's a narrative solidifying game. If that makes sense. The narrative being Nebraska's close, Nebraska's good, they just haven't won because they're playing the toughest schedule in, in college football. Well, you, you can keep all that alive with a win. It's a big game. I can't wait. I think Frost has the squad ready to go. I think it's another physical fist fight. I think Nebraska's ready for it. I think Nebraska wins, gets to 4-4, four and four, heading into their first bye week, which I have to imagine is much needed. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Runza. Everybody that knows my athletic background, you know, I was a quarterback in high school. But you know, I believe in establishing the run game. And even more than that, I believe in establishing the Runza game. That's an original Runza cheeseburger. Some onion rings, double dipped in a homemade batter. A little bit of a pop to top it off. You know, in football, you establish a run. But at lunch, you establish the Runza. It's just that simple. So get out to Runza today and establish the Runza game or check out the delicious salads. You got the chicken bacon ranch salad, sweet berry chicken salad, and my personal favorite, the Southwest chicken salad. You got to get out to Runza, establish a Runza game or get a salad. Either way, you are going to leave satisfied. Runza makes it all better. All right, let's dive into this uh, mailbag. Got a ton of great questions. Going to try and tackle a handful here. Uh, tons of good stuff on Twitter, Facebook. You can email me. Got a bunch of good email questions. Uh, Nick at nickbot.com is always the email. So let's uh, let's let's dive in. Ryan uh, sent sent me a tweet. Uh, he said, "Nick, a, a lot of comments after games. Why isn't player X playing? If you're Frost, how do you balance the standard slash culture versus getting the best players on the field?" Great question, Ryan, because there's, there is no doubt that seemingly after every game, there's kind of been, there, you know, there's been people questioning personnel. I've been one of them at times, uh, questioning personnel and why certain guys aren't playing, whether it's Yant or Xavier Betts or Omar Manning, on and on. Uh, but for the most part, and I've said this now twice on the podcast, I said it, uh, I said it to Steve Sipple in my chat with him, I said it. On uh, after the, the Michigan game and the game recap with Bo Rude, I usually, again, not always, but usually kind of stay out of playing time and depth chart discussions and who's on the field and who's not, who's on the court and who's not. Because we don't, we don't see practice. It's real easy 
for us to say, play that guy. You need to put that guy in the field. Where's Betts? Put Betts on the field. Where is Omar Manning? You have to get Yant 15 carries. It's real easy for us to sit here and say that. But what if that guy is terrible in practice? What if that guy doesn't know the playbook? What if Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the guy constantly is making mistakes? You saw the little moment in the third quarter where Jacquez Yant on second and two goes the wrong way on a handoff, runs into Adrian Martinez. Nebraska then takes a one-yard loss, and they don't convert third down, and it's a drive killer. Like, that stuff matters. And I, I don't know if that's exactly what's happening in practice, but 99% of the time, I'm going to give coaches the benefit of the doubt on playing time discussions like this. Because let's let's be real for a bit before we, we unpack this topic anymore. We all have no freaking clue about practice and why certain guys are or aren't on the, on the field. I, we don't know. I don't know. You don't know. We're not there every day. I mean, it, it could be guys messing up at practice. It might not be. It could be an attitude thing. It might not be. We don't know. Let's all be willing to say that out loud. Let's all be willing to say that out loud. But Ryan does get to the heart of a critical question because I think we'd all agree that there's a ton of super talented players, some of Nebraska's most talented players, not on the field and get, and not getting touches. And any way you slice that, that's not good. That's not good. I mean, does Frost... You, you, you start to think about it and you go, okay, does Frost need to take a look at how they're teaching things? Like, why aren't guys getting on the field? Is... If, is there something they could do at practice to better equip guys to to pick up the playbook and, and get on the field? Then they obviously need to exhaust all options in doing that. Do you need to just figure out a little package for each guy that, you know, their, their little package of five, six plays they can handle and and kind of start from there? The the thing, though, the, in saying that, the thing that Bo Root has, has talked about a lot on these game recap pods for a couple of years regarding that specific topic, is you, you can't necessarily just pare down the playbook and give certain guys a few plays that they run, and that's it. Because then you become really predictable. Because anytime, let's say every time Xavier Betts comes in, it's going to be that little revert, little pop pass, or something. You, you always know if he's coming in, you know he's coming in to run a nine route. He's just going deep. Like, well, then, I'm, then it's pretty predictable. So while I want to say just simplify things for Yant, Simplify things for Betts and Manning. Run a few plays that involve those guys and go from there. That sounds nice, but at this level of football, that may not be the best move because, again, you become predictable. But to circle back to Ryan's question, because it's a really good one, how do you balance standards slash culture with getting the best players on the field? I guess it's it's it all depends on what it is. Like, if guys don't know the playbook, Messing up assignments consistently. Like, I love how if, if guys don't know the playbook, if guys don't know what they're doing, like, I love how fans just absolve players of all responsibility in these discussions. Again, we don't know for sure what the deal is, but if a guy isn't in the playbook, doesn't know the plays, doesn't know his responsibilities, that's all the coach's fault and none of the players' fault? What? Come on. The question becomes, if you're Frost, if you're, if you're a coach, 
what are you willing to sacrifice or how much are you willing to sacrifice to put someone on the field that maybe isn't doing what they need to do through the week to show that they can get on the field? How much is a coach willing to sacrifice for talent? Work ethic standard, attention to detail standard, knowing the plays, attitude on a daily basis. Are you willing to look past some of that stuff because they're talented? The easy answer is to say yes, but that's a really tricky thing. It's a really tricky thing because to me, you are sacrificing the bigger picture for a perceived short-term gain. Let me tell you a quick story. Year after I'm done playing at Creighton, I'm a graduate assistant for Coach Altman, so about 2009. P. Allen Stinnett is a sophomore. For those who don't know, P. Allen Stinnett was a top 100 recruit. He was a freshman when I was a senior, now he's a sophomore. P. Allen Stinnett, really talented guy, not the most responsible, not the best teammate in the world, kind of a head case. Yeah, put it lightly. But he was our, he was our most talented player, no doubt about it. And that season, we lose at Arkansas Little Rock and didn't play well. We're on the road. And P. Allen Stinnett is acting a fool in the locker room after the game. Well, well, Coach Altman, I think, was doing media or something. He wasn't in the, in the locker room that was happening. He's ripping Coach Altman in front of the players. He's ripping, uh, in, he's ripping Coach Altman in front of the assistant coaches. He's ripping everybody. The entire team sees it. The entire team hears it. The entire staff hears it. All while Dana, Coach Altman, isn't in the locker room. But, of course, it gets to Coach Altman as to what was going on after the game with P. Alston. Fast forward a couple days, the next game on our schedule is the Nebraska game. Creighton is at Nebraska. Don't need to tell you guys, big rivalry game, as you guys all know. It's arguably the biggest game of the season in a lot of ways, especially for Creighton back in the day when they were in the Missouri Valley Conference. I remember we were at the Cornhusker Hotel. We have a coaches meeting, and Coach Altman asks what we all think he should do to Peon Stinnett for a kind of a punishment. Says, should I, do I need to suspend him for a game? Do I, do I play him? Do I just run him? What do I do? And, you know, I'm not going to name names, but I, I, was, I felt like I was fairly alone in saying that you absolutely can't play him. You have to sit him for a game. You have to send a message. And I remember Coach Altman then, after the meeting, he called me to his hotel room. And, you know, I come in and he goes, sit down. He goes, and he just asks, well, why, why did you say that? Why do you think that? And I told him, Coach, you got 12 other guys in that locker room that are watching you and, and, and what you do. You play P. Allen Stinnett after he did what he did and acted the way he did, you're going to lose the rest of the team. Coach Altman kind of nodded and said, okay. Coach Altman just doesn't play P. Allen Stinnett in that Nebraska game. And we lost. We lost a close game. Could we have, could we have beat Nebraska with, with P. Allen? Probably. I don't know but lost. And it hurt, right? But I do think for that season, it made an impact. I really do. We went on to go 24-4 and four in our next 28 games. 24-4 and four in our next 28 games. Just missed the NCAA tournament, ended up losing to Kentucky in the NIT. In the NIT. But I think it sent a message to Peon Stinnett and to the team for, for in the moment. And I think it made a difference. I tell that story to point out that your actions as a coach with who you play not only 
send a message to that player, but it also sends a message to every other player on the team. Whether you like it or not, you are sending messages with everything you do as a head coach. Everything. Again, I want to reiterate, we don't know exactly what the deal is at practice. We don't. But I've, I've, like I said, I'm going to give the coaches the benefit of the doubt on who's playing and who's not. If Jacquez Yant's not on the field and he's not going to care, there's probably a decent reason for that. If, if Xavier Betts isn't on the field, there's probably a reason for that. I think he was banged up last game. If Omar Manning's not on the field as, for as many snaps as whoever, that, there's probably a reason for that. I mean, just say it out loud. You think you think Frost and Lubick and those guys are like, you know, Betts and Manning, those guys are maybe our two most talented guys. Let's just, how about we make this a lot harder and just not play them? Yeah, how about that? That'd be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, let's just not play those guys. They're super talented, but whatever. Let's just not play them. I mean, what are we talking about? Again, if, if certain guys aren't on the field, I have to imagine there's a good reason for it. Just like I'm sure there are Jays fans who are like, why the hell is Pion Jeanette on the bench for this game? Well, let me tell you, there's a damn good reason for that back in 2009 when Creighton lost at Nebraska. There was a reason. So to answer Ryan's question, I definitely think you got to explore all options to figure out how to get your talented dudes on the field. Duh. But there's always that point where you just can't sacrifice things, man. You just, you, they're, 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 everybody's got that point, got that line. You can deal with certain things, you can deal with certain things, whatever, but there's that, that, that line where you can't sacrifice it. Because if you start doing that, eventually it's going to catch up to you. Just like I think the law, I, I do think, I, I wish this Peon Stinette story had a, had a happier ending because I, I think in the long term, the three years of sacrificing the standard more often than not for Peon Stinette ultimately caught up to that team, that group. And I think it caught up to Coach Altman and, and to Creighton. I really believe that like in some ways Peon Stinette was, was very, very, he had played a large role in kind of things spiraling towards the end of Dana's tenure at Nebraska. Or at Creighton, excuse me. So you got to be careful, man. You got to be careful. Great question from Ryan, because that's a really, really good topic. Next question is from Dan. This was, I, had, I had a lot of fun kind of parsing this one through. Dan says, Nick, where would you rank Adrian Martinez in the list of post-Eric Crouch Nebraska quarterbacks? Ooh, post-Eric Crouch Nebraska quarterbacks. Okay, so uh, for me, I think we got to figure out who we're really talking about because there's been a lot of guys that have taken snaps at quarterback post Eric Crouch, but who are we really talking about? To me, the eligible guys, I'm only going to rank five. I'm going to do the top five. The eligible guys to me are Zach Taylor, Joe Gans, Taylor Martinez, Tommy Armstrong, and Adrian Martinez. I realize other guys have started games, Tanner Lee, Sam Keller, Zach Lee, Cody Green, Riker Fife, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But those five, Zach Taylor, Joe Gans, Tommy Armstrong, Taylor Martinez, Adrian Martinez, the, those five are the five that are the best, in my opinion, and have the most starts. they got a big enough sample size. And, you know, before I, before I lay out my official rankings, I, because his, his question specifically asked about Adrian Martinez, overall, I'm not so sure 
overall talent, like who's the most talented dude in that in in this bunch? I think it's Adrian Martinez. When you just go to athleticism, arm, intangibles, what all this, you go down the list, like Adrian might be the most complete, most talented dude. But you gotta take but it's not just about talent, right? Because what's tough is at some point you gotta value winning. Because Gans and Taylor and Taylor Martinez and Tommy Armstrong, those guys did a lot more winning than Adrian Martinez has done. And it's some, on some level that matters. Now, to be fair, like supporting cast situation matters a ton for a quarterback. But at some point, winning has to matter. Not saying it's the end all be all, but it has to matter. And that is where the Adrian Martinez argument kind of falls apart if you want to try to build the case to put him number one. All those other guys just wanted a much higher clip than Adrian Martinez did. And sure, we can sit here and explain away why Adrian Martinez hasn't won and others did win. But you know, here, here's where that argument gets to be shaky. Adrian Martinez has had numerous opportunities in the clutch in clutch moments of one-score games, and he's repeatedly come up short. It's kind of the Martinez conundrum that Bo Rude and I dove into towards the end of our last game recap pod, the Michigan game recap pod. Adrian Martinez simultaneously is the only reason his team has a chance to win, but he's usually the culprit in making the play for his team to lose. Not all the time, but a decent amount of time. And so you got to be able to look at the whole scope when assessing somebody. Not all losses are created equal. Like, you got to dig into the losses. For instance, lots of people want to point to LeBron James's finals losses, losses in the, in the finals, and oversimplify it and pen it all on him and call him a loser because of it, which is silly. Because if any, you watch those, the way you watch those series and you watch his team and you watch who he's going against. Come on. The only, to me, the only finals loss that I think is, was a really, really bad look for him was the 2011 finals where they lost to the Dallas Mavericks. He was bad. He didn't play well. He shrunk in big moments. His team was better, and they lost. All the other losses, he was pretty damn good and just got beat. Unfortunately for Adrian Martinez, in a lot of these one-score losses, he had a chance to save the game and win and didn't. But at the same time, in a lot of those one-score losses, he was really good and just something went wrong and they lost. So there's, you know, there's, there's two sides to that coin. So while I truly do think he's arguably the most talented of that bunch, his record at some point matters to me enough to not put him at number one. So here we go. Here's how I'd rank those five guys in the ranking the Nebraska quarterbacks post Eric Crouch. I'd rank those five guys like this. At number one, I'm going to put Joe Gans. I'm going to put Joe Gans. To me, he had the best combination of mobility, arm, and intangibles. Like he he kind of he had Arm, legs, brains. I think when you're looking at a complete quarterback, he won football games. Like when you look at the complete package, I think Gans had the checks the most boxes. So I'll put Gans at number one. He narrowly edged out Zach Taylor. 
you could easily make an argument for Zach Taylor to be one in this list, and I, I'd, it'd be hard to argue. He was the Big 12 Offensive Player of the Year in 2006. He, he led Nebraska to a Big 12 title game appearance. He was tough as nails. He was just a little limited physically, not very mobile, didn't necessarily have a, have a huge arm, but man, was he, he was a cool customer. He was a winner. He was talented. You could eat, if you want to say Zach Taylor's number one, I, I'm not going to push back on that at all. At number three, I'm going to put Adrian. I'm going to put Adrian Martinez at number three. Uber talented. He checks pretty much every box you'd want in a quarterback except for winning in his career right now. Everything else, multiple-year captain, athletic, can run the ball, good arm. Seems like a great teammate. But the just there's that that record as a starting quarterback just gives you enough to be like, eh, what's it, it it's hard to put him above Joe Gans and Zach Taylor when you you know when you're when you got a losing record as a quarterback. It just does. So number three, I'll put Adrian. And number four, I'm gonna put Taylor Martinez. As bizarre of a Husker football player and to watch and assess in my lifetime. Like when he was good. He was lights out, must-see TV, call your friends. Are you fucking watching this? Good. When he was, his good was maybe better than anybody else's good. But man, when he, when he was bad, it was really bad. And I always think the 2010 season kind of tells the tale of Taylor. Like, he was incredible against Washington, incredible against Kansas State. He he uh, outdueled Brandon Whedon and Justin Blackman in Stillwater and in, in Oklahoma State. Hung like fifty on the Cowboys, but then he was pulled against South Dakota State that that season at home in a game that Nebraska almost lost. He was awful, bizarre player. He always felt like he wasn't a pure quarterback. He felt like he was just a freaky athlete playing quarterback. He was maybe the fastest Husker I've ever seen on the field. But for me, he just, for whatever reason, I just never, I never really trusted Taylor. Like, had a weird personality, wasn't a natural quarterback, not a very vocal guy, turnover prone, just kind of didn't fit the mold of what I like in a quarterback and, and a leader. Now, that's just, I mean, that's a, it's a me thing. But man, one of the most electric and exciting players who, who did win a lot of games. Say what you want, guy won a lot of games. But for I just never fully trusted Adrian Martinez. But I'll put him at four. Then at number five, I'll put Tommy Armstrong. You know, Tommy is one of those guys that if you would just blind resume him and look at like stats and, and wins and losses, Tommy's a guy that probably gets probably should get some more respect. But I don't know. I watching him play, I was just never wowed by Tommy. He's a good player. Don't get me wrong. But I don't, I don't know. I never was just blown away by Tommy's talent. I did. I remember feeling terrible for him because he was put in a tough spot in 2015, Mike Riley's first year win. Remember that? That was the year that Mike Riley tried to turn him into a pro-style pocket passer, and it just was. It was. It was unfortunate. When when Riley finally adjusted and molded and ran him more in 2016 and blended things, he was much better. 
But I do think he's one of those guys that benefited greatly early on in his career by having Amir Abdullah lining up behind him. That's going to help a lot. That's going to help a lot. He wasn't voted captain his senior year, which was kind of a red flag for me. I just I thought Tommy Armstrong was solid. I never I never thought he was an elite quarterback. So there you go. Post Eric Crouch Husker quarterback rankings. Number one, Joe Gans. Number two, Zach Taylor. Number three, Adrian Martinez. Number four, Taylor Martinez. And number five, Tommy Armstrong. Speaking of Adrian Martinez, I got a lot of different forms of questions about Adrian and I'll kind of come I'm going to combine a bunch in tackling the topic of had a lot of people asking me what I think about Adrian Martinez and him coming back next season and then also the struggles from Adrian Martinez and Nebraska in late game situations over the course of the past three and a half years so first of all on the topic of Adrian Martinez coming back next year I don't really have a great read on it or feel on it Mainly because it's, you know, listen, it's hard to know for sure what's what's in someone's head and heart in terms of what they want, right? Like some people, I, I remember for me, like, uh, and I'm sure it's how it is for a lot of, of you, like sometimes after college, after four years of college, you're ready to turn the page and be done. You're ready for something new. To a certain extent, that's how it was a little bit. Like I had a good gig going at 1620. You know, I'd been there 10 years. I would, you know, offered a, a contract extension. My ratings were good. I just was, re- I was ready to, I was ready to, to launch my own podcast. I was ready to go all in on my TV career. Like I was ready for something new. So, and, but that, that's in my head and my heart, you know? So we may try to look at, at, at this Adrian Martinez situation from purely a football standpoint and through a football lens but maybe he maybe he just wants to move on to the next chapter of his life. Who knows? But when you look at Adrian Martinez, you go, okay, what are his options? He can stay at Nebraska for a fifth year. He can enter the NFL draft and roll the dice, see what happens, knowing that, listen, you go down that path, you could end up out of football and all of a sudden you're in the real world, right? Or he could transfer and, and play quarterback in another school to finish his career because last year didn't count because of COVID. So I think of all those those options, I would put them in order of most likely to least likely at, at most likely stay at Nebraska. Second being enter the NFL draft and third being transferring. I just can't see him transferring. That just doesn't seem like him in my opinion. I don't know Adrian like that, but that doesn't seem like him. I will say when you, you look at this NFL draft quarterback class is pretty weak, but let's be real. You know, Adrian Martinez's draft profile isn't the strongest thing in the world either, right? Let's let's be honest about that. You know, he could he could though, you know, he could he could finish this year and and make some noise, but there's also a scenario where he finishes this year, he had four straight losing seasons, no bowl game appearances, accuracy issue, accuracy and turnover issues. Like that doesn't sound like a draftable player, right? Although, at the, you know, this season, he's going to have to... When you look at the final final six games or whatever it is of this of this season now, five games, he's going to get two more cracks at top 10 teams in Ohio State and Iowa. If he plays well in those games, I could, I could see an NFL team late in the draft talking themselves into Adrian. Because you could you could sit there at Adrian Mar- and look at Adrian Martinez and go, okay, listen, like if you're in a war room and you're talking to a GM and and the, and the head coach and all that stuff, it, you could go, hey, listen, as for for Adrian, he was in a bad situation in college in terms of what was around him on offense. Two years, he had a center 
a converted tight end playing center. It was snapping over his head. He really had no wide receivers to throw the ball to for the majority of his career. He's been hurt at times. He had no elite running back to take pressure off of him. You, you can explain away some of his issues. Plus, he's a good athlete, and he's an impressive dude if you'd sit down one-on-one with him and chat with him. So I could see someone talking themselves into it. But it's also a pretty big stretch to think that Martinez will get drafted, right? So I honestly lean towards him coming back. It, it just it makes sense to me, especially with, with name, image, and likeness and him being able to make a good chunk of change. That will only go up next year for him if he comes back, in my opinion. So I really don't have a strong sense on what he'll do, but I think it makes the most sense on paper to come back. Not to mention, the rest of the offense is somewhat kind of rounding into form. I think he could see this whole thing finally coming together, and that may make him want to stay. Who knows? Who knows? I will say this. Husker fans, you you definitely want Adrian Martinez to come back. You you don't 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 get don't don't get crazy here. I got a couple of emails from people like, eh, do you how, do you think there could be some fans that don't want him back? Do you think there's a do you actually think it may be a bad thing if he comes back? Eh. That that feels like you're you're outthinking yourself a little bit, right? It feels like you're outthinking yourself. If Martinez doesn't come back, like I have a hard time seeing Smothers being an upgrade or playing to Martinez's level. I just do. I mean, hell, Nebraska may have to go into the transfer portal if Martinez leaves. You never know. So for me, if Adrian Martinez coming back greatly impacts the trajectory of of next season for Nebraska. If he leaves, it does kind of feel like the offense takes a step back, which is concerning. It's concerning to stay out loud, to say out loud. So we'll see. Don't have a great feel for it. I think on paper, the, the decision that makes the most sense to me is for him to come back, but... You know, we'll see how these final, you know, handful of weeks play out and see what happens. Which leads me into the other topic I got a lot regarding Adrian Martinez, and, and that's the Martinez and late game struggles. The Dick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors. By Pella won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. We all know that we all know the stat, right? Nebraska is 5-16 and 16 in games decided by one score or less since Scott Frost took over. That's, you know, 16 losses by one score or less. That's the most in the nation. Over the, over the last three seasons, three and a half seasons. And Martinez is the quarterback for the, for the vast majority of those. Nebraska has had numerous opportunities late in games in the final two minutes to drive down the field, score, and win. And they haven't done it. And shouts out to Husker fans because, man, you've seen some good research 
done on Twitter and different areas, and I've, I've had a handful of things sent to me. Patrick emailed me, sent me a whole bunch of good stuff. I got a tweet sent to me, I believe, from Eric, uh, put together kind of a, a, a spreadsheet on Nebraska and late drives, late game drive success, and all of it is eye-opening in a bad way. I'll, I'll, I'll comb through some of these bullet points for, for people. So, In Nebraska's final possession chart, when tied or losing by one score or less since 2018, Nebraska has had 17 total drives in in those scenarios and have only one win. Wow. Adrian Martinez has one win in 15 games, two total scores on 17 drives in those scenarios. Yikes. Now, to be fair, Nebraska's had other quarterbacks like Vedrol and Andrew Bunch and Luke McCaffrey in there at times during Martinez's time. So Patrick looked up and broke out between Martinez and the backups. So chew on this. Again, Nebraska 5-16 and 16 in games decided by one score or less. Adrian Martinez is 3-12. and 12. That's his record in those games as a starting quarterback. The backups are 2-4. and four. Scoring on the final drive. Adrian Martinez is one for nine. He had the touchdown to tie Iowa in 2018. The backups are one for five. He had the field goal to beat Northwestern. I believe that was Vedral that led that drive. That was in 2019. Turnovers. Adrian Martinez has two interceptions and a fumble. Backups have one interception. Turnovers on downs. Adrian Martinez has five. The backups have four. Points to win the game. Adrian has zero. Backups have one field goal. I mean, all that is pretty sobering, right? We all know it's been bad. We all know the overall record of 5-16 and 16 in one-score games, but to see it broken down statistically like that is pretty eye-opening. And it goes back to what I, what Bo and I talked about, what I talked about a little bit ago, uh, is back to that Martinez conundrum. Martinez is the best player on the team. He's the reason you have a chance to win. He's the reason you're within one score or you lead by one score. He's the reason. But he also just hasn't come through in in those big moments. And what's tough is I like Adrian Martinez a lot. I've been a Martinez defender, and I'm still defending him. But he's had numerous chances to come through, and he hasn't. I mean, to me, that's that's not a hot take or an opinion. That's a fact. And it's just, it's maddening because he's a good player. But something just isn't clicking in these final drives. Now, to be fair, like you look at the the Oklahoma final drive this year in Norman. I mean, dude got zero pass protection, got sacked twice. So maybe hold on the ball too long, maybe, but you guys saw it. To me, that's not on him. Or you look at the Michigan State game. Sure, he threw the pick in overtime. He drove Nebraska down the field in the middle of the fourth quarter and scored the go-ahead touchdown, only to have a a few minutes later special teams blow it on the the punt. It should have never gotten to overtime, you know? So there certainly are things within those numbers that matter, but still, there's a trend. There's a trend that's indisputable. And like Sam McEwen pointed out in his Monday Rewind, other quarterbacks have come through in the past. It's not like this is... Like a, a 
a task that is just impossible to overcome. Tommy Armstrong, Tommy Armstrong came through quite a bit. Michigan State 2015, Oregon 2016, Michigan 2013. Taylor Martinez did. Michigan State 2012. Like Tanner, hell, Tanner Lee did. I think Purdue late in the year in 2017. He he led a comeback. So it's not impossible. And Adrian just just kind of hasn't. And there's a correlation with all this. Like, Nebraska can't get over the hump because Martinez can't get over the hump. Or you can just flip it and, you know, Martinez can't get over the hump because the rest of the operation can't get over the hump, depending on how you want to frame it and look at it. But, man, Nebraska has has had to – it's it's crazy. Like, Nebraska has had to work so hard to fix so many things just to get in these one-score situ- score situations that they've failed to improve in these one-score situations, right? Like, their margin for error is so slim that, you know, they got to really do a lot to just be in the game. And that in and of itself takes a lot of work. I mean, they just have not been good in those big spots. To me, it just – Bo said it in the recap pod, and I agree with him, like – it seems like one of the most pressing things that Nebraska should be working on at practice every day is two-minute offense. Like, all the time, every day. Two-minute offense. It needs work. They need to tighten up some things. And it's weird, you know, when we think of crunch time and those spots, like, in in my opinion, those spots, that's baller time. There's a time where coaching and scheme and all that matters. And there's a time where players gotta gotta play and and ballers gotta rise up and win the game. Like, remember McNeese State? I think Tommy Armstrong gets that come from behind win. Amir Abdullah just said, fuck this. Just give me the ball. Just I'm, I'm gonna break ten tackles and win the game. Like, sometimes you just gotta you gotta be a baller. Just go win the game. Go make a play. Right? So, to me, late game situations, whether it's basketball or football, it's more about the Jimmys and the Joes and less about X's and O's. Not saying you, you, you don't got to be buttoned up and organized and you don't need to practice it, but more often than not, late game situations are about the, the players more so than the schemes. But man, I don't know. I'm not I'm not smart enough to be able to provide the answer for everyone on this issue. You know, what's going wrong in the two minute offense? Like I just know that in my opinion, one score games, late two minute game situations, that's usually where quarterbacks separate themselves. That's where you find out who has it and who doesn't. And so far, Martinez has struggled. And Nebraska around him has struggled. And it's maddening because I, I, Martinez just, I feel like I'm watching a really good player. And then in those spots, it just doesn't happen. I don't think it's a situation where Martinez can't get over the hump and find it. I think he can't. And a lot of these late game situations are also about confidence too. And the way to acquire that confidence is to get it done in a game. And more often than not, they've, they've come up short. That's hard to, that's hard to deal with. So I do think there's an element of this where Martinez just needs to get it done in a spot and hope that that propels him and the group moving forward. 
my only, you know, amateur advice in all this from playing quarterback, being an all-state quarterback in, in high school and, and then playing college basketball would be this. There's a there's a cliche in sports that you, you hear from some coaches. The, the first step in winning the game is to stop losing it. Or another way to, to look at it, it's that Bobby Knight line of dumb loses more games than smart wins. Or even take what Brett Bielema said in, in Media Days just a couple of months ago. He said, quote, it's a simple idea, but it's also not preached nearly enough that most of the time, more games are actually lost than won. Mm. Think about that now. How freaking applicable is that to Nebraska? Again, let me read that. Brett, this is Brett Bielema, head coach of Illinois. It's a simple idea, but it's also not preached nearly enough that most of the time, more games are actually lost than won. How many times have all of us watched the clock strike zero and walk away from Nebraska over the past three and a half, three and a half years and felt like Nebraska lost the game? Like they themselves were the main culprit in losing the game. So again, that first that that cliche in sports, the first step in winning the game is to stop losing it. I think all those cliches that I just threw out there would help Adrian Martinez. Case in point last Saturday. When Martinez gets the first down running the ball and he's in a pile, sometimes what can't happen? What absolutely cannot happen? You can't lose the ball. You can't think the play's dead, hope for the whistle and stuff. You can you can't lose the ball. You just can't. Sometimes I watch Adrian and I think he needs to he needs to understand that there are certain situations you have to think to yourself, okay, what absolutely can't happen in this situation? And keep that in mind. That's not to suggest to be in a negative frame of mind. But I think as a quarter, you got to be able to process a lot of things quickly. I know I used to think about that in big spots at quarterback or playing basketball in big moments. What can't happen here? Can't give up a three. Can't give up an offensive rebound. I cannot take a sack. I absolutely cannot take a sack. If my my first read is is not open, I cannot force anything. Right? Like things like that. What can't happen here? I used a golf analogy earlier. Like it's, you know, when you get to aim it, you get to 16 at Augusta, what can't happen? You cannot hook it into the water, right? Like if you're going to miss, you have to miss right. That's not to say you're not stepping up to the tee confident, but sometimes you have to assess the situation and these things got to happen fast, but you got to go, what can't happen? And then you play accordingly. Again, like I said, whether that's taking a sack, staying in bounds on a run, overthrowing a guy, being loose with the ball in contact, trying to make a play when you, you need to go down, trying to extend a play, whatever. It's not an ability thing more often than not. I think it's it's Martinez himself who is kind of holding him. He's, he's the one that's holding himself back with self-inflicted stuff. He's got to change it, right? The other 21 guys got to be better too. It's not all on Adrian Martinez, but it all starts with Martinez. That's the nature of the quarterback position. It's why you want to play it, dude. You know, it's a, 
Too much is given, much is expected, right? Heavy is the, the head that wears the crown. When you're the quarterback, it comes with the territory. It's a lot of a lot expected out of you. That's that's what drew me to the position initially. I think it's why it's the most fascinating, fun position to discuss and watch in sports. It's the most important position in sports because it's it's the most in it's it's the there's so much riding on that spot. So it starts with him. Not saying Nebraska got to get a lot better in a lot a ton of areas, but it starts with him in these big spots. He hangs onto the ball on Saturday when he goes into that pile. We may be having a different chat. He hits Levi Falk on that shallow crosser with a minute left. We may be having a different conversation today. He's got to change it. He's got to make plays and gain confidence in these spots. Because you better believe when you look at the rest of the schedule with games at Minnesota and at Wisconsin and Ohio State at home and Iowa at home, they're gonna they're likely going to be in at least three or four more one-score games. They are. Next question, also from uh, Ryan. I think it's a different one, Ryan. <clears throat> Says, Nick, struggling with the results for the Huskers. Team looks better, but still not getting the results on the field. So, based on what you've seen, is Frost's job safe if they don't go to a bowl? If this team is good enough to go to a bowl but doesn't, isn't that an indictment on coaching? And that's from Ryan. First of all, the answer to the last part of the question, yes, that is an indictment on coaching. I mean, from, from a big picture, broad perspective, a, a way to assess coaching is to kind of simply go, okay, every team has a projected ceiling, right? Like, okay, what's the potential of this group? And did you reach that potential? Did you exceed it? Did you fall short of it? And I think we'd all agree with this defense, with that, with that much experience and a four-year starter at quarterback, to not go to a bowl game is would be disappointing. And I think Scott Frost would agree. But this is where context and eye test, actually watching, matters. I do think the schedule has to be taken into consideration when, assess, when assessing this whole thing. I think it'd be kind of disingenuous to, to play the tough guy. Like, doesn't matter. Play who's on the schedule. Yeah. Okay. Nebraska's playing the toughest schedule in the country. Nebraska has played three top 10 teams already and as of right now. And they will play two more top 10 teams to finish the season in Ohio State and Iowa. So this Nebraska might end up playing five, five top 10 teams. That's insane. Lots of teams would potentially go 0-5 versus top 10 teams in a season, right? There are lots of teams if... if there are a lot of teams in the country right now, if they had to play at Oklahoma, at Michigan State, and play Michigan at home, they'd be 0-3-2. That's not to let Nebraska off the hook. I'm just, let's, let's not bullshit each other. So that matters. The thing that is encouraging is Nebraska is playing these top 10 teams tough. Should have beat Michigan State, could have easily beaten Oklahoma and Michigan. They could be 3-0 and against those teams. They're a few plays away from that being a reality. But they aren't. So you got to take it for what it is, but combine it with context, a.k.a. the schedule, and then also combine it with the eye test. I was thinking about this, and this might get some cringing and some eye rolls and some pushback. So so brace yourself. I'm going to take a drink before I deliver this. I was thinking about this. I could argue. I could argue that I'm more impressed 
with the 2021 Nebraska team through the first seven games of the season at three and four than I was through the first seven games of the 2016 season, Riley's second year, where they were 7-0. and Because to me, you watched how those games played out. Outside of Oregon at home, that schedule is pretty soft. And I just think the overall eye test, I lean towards 20, this 2021 team looking better. I get that that is subjective, but I'm just being real. I know that's hard to argue. But I'm just being honest with you guys. And I say that to say I test and context matter in assessing things for a team and a program. The, the hard part about all this, at some point, Nebraska has to start winning games, period. At some point, they have to start winning games to validate the eye tests, the eye test, and the context narrative that we are telling ourselves. Right? I think that's, I think that's what made the Northwestern game so exciting and satisfying for people. Because not only did Nebraska play well and smash Northwestern fifty-six to seven, it validated that narrative. It validated the narrative, hey, that that this team is close and they would break through if they weren't playing such a tough schedule. Well, here comes a weaker opponent that isn't a top 10 team in Northwestern and Nebraska absolutely dominated them, which was validating to our eyes and to our brain a bit. So listen, it's complicated. There's a lot to consider. I get it. Not going to a bowl is disappointing, but context and and eye test have to matter. I personally don't think Scott Frost is on the hot seat. You heard those those Trev quotes that I read you. I think everyone is on the same page. Of course, everything we're all subject to change, right? Like things things can always change if things were to unravel, but I don't think they will. I don't think they will. couple last hoops questions to to wrap this bad boy up. Brandon says, Nick, who's your starting five for game one for Creighton? Do they roll out most of the freshmen? Good question. I'd have to imagine there's a ton of competition on a daily basis for minutes and starting spots going on in Omaha right now at Creighton's practices. Tons. Right? That's what happens when you lose your your entire starting five, your five leading scorers, like there's a lot of minutes and spots up for grabs. But I do think, at least for game one, there are three locks to start game one. Sharif Mitchell, Alex O'Connell, and Ryan Kalkbrenner. I think any way you slice it, I'd be really surprised if those three guys weren't starting game one. The question is, to me, who snags those other two spots? I lean towards Arthur Kaluma, the the top 50, top 60 freshman, four-star kid, 6'8", athletic. I, I lean towards Kaluma and Ryan Hawkins, the Northwest Missouri State Division II transfer, won two national titles at Northwest Missouri State. Uh, I lean towards those two guys for the last two spots. But the problem with those two guys is Kaluma and Hawkins are both at their best at the four. So there's kind of a log jam at that spot. And Kaluma and Hawkins are two of the best players on the team, and they they play the same position. 
if, if you, in terms of wanting them at their best. So I, I think there could be some, you know, juggling around and massaging different lineups. I do think you could slide Ryan Hawkins to play small ball five some or even Kaluma to the wing and have him play the three a little bit. So I, you could see situations where those two guys are on the floor at the same time, either at the four and the five or the three and the four. So that's one potential problem. The other issue is Ryan Nemhart, like total stud, freshman from Canada. He He's a great player. Nemhard from Gonzaga's little brother. Ryan Nemhard, if you watched him play in the FIBA under-19 games for, for the Canadian national team. He was awesome. He needs to... You need him on the floor as much as possible. So I, I think you could see scenarios where Creighton's trying to find a way to play both Sharif Mitchell and Ryan Nemhart at the same time, playing two point guards together, which I kind of like. They kind of did that with Tyshawn Alexander and Zagorowski. They did that last year a little bit with Sharif Mitchell and Marcus Zagorowski. So, you know, it can happen. You see that a lot. Baylor played, you know, they, they basically played multiple point guards throughout their their. I mean, that's what Gonzaga did with Suggs and Nemhard, and you know, any more now you you playing two point guards at once at the same time is not uncommon. So, especially because Sharif Mitchell is your defensive stopper, so you need him on the floor as much as possible for for those things. So, there's some predicaments for this staff to figure out. But if I had to guess, game number one, game number one starting lineup, I'll think uh, I'm going to go with Sharif Mitchell, Ryan Nemhard, Alex O'Connell. Arthur Kaluma and Ryan Kalkbrenner. So I think they're going to end up starting two freshmen. That that's my guess. But what's crazy in that scenario is you might be bringing your best player and dude who could lead you in scoring off the bench in Ryan Hawkins. Because I'm telling you guys, I'm hearing great things about Ryan Hawkins for, out, out of practice. I think he's turning a lot of heads. I think he's poised for a big year. So we'll see. It's exciting. I mean, we're only at, you know, under five weeks away from, or four weeks away, whatever it is, from things tipping off. Dan sends this question in. Says, Nick, so who wins the Nebraska Creighton basketball game in the Battle of Diaper Dandies? And would my veteran Drake squad beat both of them? First of all, Drake's going to be tough again this year. Coach DeVries has done a great job in Des Moines, the former Blue Jay assistant guy I've known for 20 years. When you think about D-Rock, they won the Valley in his first year, went to the NCAA tournament last year, and won their first four game over Wichita State. D-Rock, Coach DeVries is doing a great job. And that team basically returns everyone except for one stud guard in Yesifu who who transferred to Kansas. So, listen, Drake could, would give Nebraska and Creighton a hell of a game right now. Hell of a game. But with Creighton and Nebraska... So that game's November 16th. It's about one month away. That game's on FS1. It's it's looking like I'm on the call with Kugler for that game. So we we are, Kevin and I are already texting each other. We are pumped. I can't wait. It's hard to call right now, man. I don't know how to size that game up. Creighton has obviously dominated the series, but Creighton's got a brand new team. All five, their five starters gone. And then you look at Nebraska. Nebraska's got, a ton of talent on their roster, but they're still a work in progress and putting it all together too. They do return a good core, finally, in, you know, McGowan's and La- Trey McGowan's and Latmayan and Derek Walker and Kobe Webster. But they're going to be working in a lot of new pieces that are going to play vital roles as well. So I'll be fascinated when, when thinking about this game. I'll be fascinated with how both teams handle the environment. Mainly how Creighton handles a rockin' Pinnacle Bank arena. Because 
If you ask me, Creighton's not going to play in a tougher environment all year than what they will see on November 16th inside Pinnacle Bank Arena taking on Nebraska. It's going to be, it is going to be crazy in there. And the thing you got to remember is last year was a COVID year, so there were no fans. So, you know, a guy like Ryan Kalkbrenner, he's never played in a real environment. Alex O'Connell has because he was at Duke to start his career. Sharif Mitchell did a little as a freshman at, at Creighton. That's basically it. Everyone else, the five freshmen, sorry, but your your, your little high school game is not, not going to be like Pinnacle Bank Arena, okay? And Ryan Hawkins, you're, you know, playing <laughs> Missouri Southern where there's 3,500 people in the arena. That's not the same. So, like, how are they going to handle that environment? So, it's a real concern. Because I remember two years ago, Fred Hoiberg's first year at, at Nebraska. I remember talking to Coach Hoiberg. I had the game on TV. I remember standing with him on the floor during warm-ups. And I'm talking to Coach Hoiberg, and I, I and that's when he had a bunch of uh, freshmen and new dudes and, and newcomers, and they're playing in Omaha. And I talked with him before the game, and I, I said, Coach, are you worried about how your team will handle the environment? And he, he looked at me. His eyes got wide, and he said, very. And I said, okie dokie. I think the same thing for Creighton this time. And I'm tell- I've am played in this rivalry. It's different, man. Like, the vibe in the arena is different. It's a little nasty. It's a little more hostile. I expect Pinnacle Bank Arena to be freaking nuts. I'll be curious to see how, how Creighton handles it. Because, again, we all know, I mean, listen, we all know Creighton's dominated this series. They've owned it, Nebraska. And Nebraska still has to tighten a bunch of things up. So it's gonna be fun. To, it's gonna be fun to watch these two teams play, and and then lock horns on November sixteenth. I'd lean Nebraska right now because of what I laid out, but we'll see. We shall see. I can't wait, man. November sixteenth can't get here fast enough. All right, that'll do it. Good questions, man. Those are those are fantastic questions. Appreciate everybody. Uh, participating. I always love firing up the old mailbag. Reminder, a couple of reminders. Make sure you subscribe to that podcast. Just click that subscribe button. Also, leave a a five-star rating and a review. It helps me out. Plus, make sure you go subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just type in Nick Baugh, the Nick Baugh podcast on YouTube. Uh, We got a lot of the game recap pods up there. I I do a lot of my podcasts on video. Uh, So make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Every Every subscription to the YouTube channel helps me be able to monetize the page. So it really helps you boy out. So I'm calling on you to help me out, okay? So Nebraska, Minnesota, that's coming up on Saturday. Bo Rude and I will have a game recap for you, so make sure you get ready to listen to that. And we'll catch you next time on the Nick Bob Podcast. A Huda Media Production.